Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. Just can't quite get out of Ephesians, huh? We finished the book a couple weeks ago, and then I went back, and then I'm going back again, back farther. Maybe if we start at the back and work to the front, we'll get a different perspective, right? Ephesians 4, and I want to look at verses 26 and 27. I mentioned this morning that I was pleasantly surprised by um, the number of requests that I received and by the substance of the requests that I received. In fact, I felt like um, you have an appetite for heavy things. And so uh, I was happy with that. Um, some requests were easier than others. Uh, the, the request I'll be preaching tonight is on anger. And I've got that one down. <laughs> I've got a handle on it. And uh, so I can preach that uh, right away. Some uh, of the Fruitful Christianity series uh, that I preached uh, a few years ago. Messages on law and grace and loving your neighbor. Um, the triumph passages in Revelation as well. Others asked me to do things that would take me several years, I was asked to preach um, through the book of Ezekiel. That shouldn't be as hard as preaching through Isaiah, which I was also asked to do and asked to preach through the book of Revelation and through the book of Lamentations. Lamentations might be at least a little shorter um, because it's only six chapters. Um, But uh, anyway, um, not giving anyone a hard time. I appreciated all the requests and everything that I was asked to do. I've decided what I've decided to do is to give a few weeks to each of these requests. So that means I'm going to preach a few messages in Isaiah and a few in Ezekiel. And I may preach through Lamentations or preach the book somehow to you. And uh, then... I'm going to try to hit, give everyone something. How about that? Reward you for coming to me and asking me to preach these things. Um, And we'll do that on Sunday nights uh, through, I think, well, when I sat down and plotted it, it was the rest of the year. And then I got more requests. So uh, we'll do the best we can on this. It won't be entirely satisfactory to you, but... Um, it will give something to you in return. I hope it will. And uh, enable me to cover as many of these requests as possible. So we begin with anger. And I was thinking, I was telling my wife that whenever I preach on anger, I feel like it should be a really hot sermon. Lots of pulpit pounding. There should be some intensity to it. And uh, maybe some, the spit should reach a little farther Um, into that, you know, past the splash zone uh, a little bit. And then my wife did what my wife does. She looked at me and she said, wouldn't that be the opposite of what you're preaching? And um, so I'm going to preach a very calm, meek and mild message to you tonight on anger. Ephesians 4 verses 26 and 27. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. Let the sun go down. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Isn't that something how one word makes a difference? 
neither give place to the devil. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this area of anger, uh, you know the struggle that we all have uh, with anger at various times. Um, given the right circumstances, anger can happen so quickly. We can be overcome and lose control without intending to. And certainly um, the consequences are usually unintended and often very difficult to repair. And so your warnings against anger, your instruction against anger is very good because you have our good in mind. And I pray that we would give heed to what you say in your word. Help us in this area of weakness in our lives. Help us to look to you and help us to overcome. And I pray that the preaching, the message tonight would be helpful to that end. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Let me say right off the bat that anger is not innately sinful. Anger is not sinful by nature. Anger itself is not a sin. It's very difficult not to sin when you're angry, but anger is not itself a sin. Desire is not innately sinful. Our sinful lusts, corrupt desire, and the, the line between desire and covetousness is easy to cross and sometimes difficult to discern. Um, covetousness, which is a species of desire, certainly is sin. It is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. But desire, the desire part of covetousness is not bad. It is, in fact, a good thing. <clears throat> not sinful in and of itself, but covetousness is a way that our lusts hijack what is wholesome and good and turn it to evil purposes. Even so, when we look at Scripture, we see that wrath, which J.I. Packer described as deep, intense anger and indignation, wrath is an attribute of God and is in fact a part of the holiness of God as well. <clears throat> in fact, A.W. Pink has pointed out that there are more references to anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. The Bible speaks more often of the wrath of God than it does of the love of God. Wrath then must be part of a holy God who is love. Nahum 1, verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. 
The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What a vivid description of the wrath and fury of Almighty God. And who would dare say that that is not good? Second Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Again, a description of the wrath of God for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is inescapable. We cannot look in Scripture without noticing the wrath of God. Now we know that some of God's attributes are what uh, theologians call communicable, like a communicable disease. A disease that you can pass on to someone else. Contagious. And some of God's attributes are not communicable. Cannot be passed on to mankind. None of us can. None of us are infinite. Nor can we be. None of us can be infinitely powerful. Or infinitely knowledgeable. Or infinitely present. If we were to try to mimic God in these things, uh, we would, in fact, make ourselves obnoxious and insufferable. And we might actually be undone by the attempt. I've seen pastors who tried to put off as if they were all-knowing, as if they knew what everybody was doing, what everyone was thinking, and what everyone was involved in, and as if they knew the motives behind everything that everyone did. Um, this is a dangerous thing. And in fact, the pastors who I saw who tried to put off that they were all-knowing as if they knew everything uh, ended up destroying themselves in the process. And it was very destructive also to their churches because what happened is, in fact, they didn't know everything, uh, but because they weren't willing to acknowledge it, They could never have their mind changed or back off of a claim or or admit to a mistake or an error in anything. And when they made a judgment about someone, they considered it to be an infallible judgment. And it was very destructive to their reputation and to their people as well. So some attributes of God are not available to us. We can't. We can't be that. We can't imitate God in that. We can't imitate God in his power. Um, God can do anything but fail. I can fail 
and do. And I can't do anything. There are things that are beyond my ability. Other attributes of God can be imitated by Christians and should be imitated by Christians. We should strive to be, for instance, we should strive for wisdom. And where we lack wisdom, we should ask God for wisdom. We should want it. We should look to Christ in him or hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we should be going back to that well over and over and over again and considering our ways and becoming more wise like Christ. We should walk in love. God is love. God teaches us what love looks like. He shows us. He explains love to us, uh, tells us the terms uh, under which we can be said to be loving ourselves and we should strive to walk in love. We should be long suffering and merciful and patient and gracious. All these things are attributes of God. God is the example of these things, the perfection of these things. And we should strive uh, to also uh, be like Christ, be like God in those areas. And for all of these things, we would look to God as the example, and we would strive to imitate that example as best we can. But what about anger? Wrath also, clearly, in Scripture, wrath is an attribute of God. More than once, I've heard Christians argue that only God can be angry without sinning. Now, I think we have grounds to be suspicious of just about everything that we do. And we recognize the imperfections of even the very best things that we strive to do. Could we not say that only God can be wise without sinning? And only God can be merciful without sinning? And only God can be long-suffering and patient without sinning? I don't think that saying only God can be angry without sinning is an argument against anger. I've heard it argued that anger is always sin for us. In fact, my wife was reminding me of a time when I was asked to teach on anger and instructed that anger is always sin, and so I needed to make that case, and I, I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that. And the person who was instructing me on it kept bringing me more verses and getting more upset with me the longer I... But not sinning. Not sinning, though. <clears throat> the idea that we should never attempt to follow... God and his wrath and anger is not an idea I find in Scripture. I can't be all-knowing, but I can know. I can't know everything, but I can know with certainty. I can know God through Christ. I can't know God absolutely. I can't know him comprehensively. Well, I can know him as comprehensively as he's revealed himself to me in Scripture, and he has revealed himself comprehensively, but I cannot know him exhaustively. I cannot know everything that there is to know about God, but I can know God, though, and I should strive to. And the fact that some of the things that I quote-unquote know about God 
are not true things, not right things, that I am mistaken in some of my perspectives of God. And as I've seen over 20 some years of pastoring, some of my viewpoints of God have been changed by the word of God and a better understanding of it. Nonetheless, I should strive to know God and I can declare that I do know him because he's revealed himself to me as he has to you in the word of God and in the world around us, the nature, the the natural world, the world of creation. I can't be all powerful, but I can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And I can be encouraged. I can be strengthened. I can be confident in the strength that God has given me. I can be confident that I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Despite the fact that I am not all powerful, almighty, I can't do all things, but I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I can't be everywhere present, but I can be present where I need to be present, when I need to be present, and I can make my presence felt in a helpful way, in an encouraging way. In other words, even in those attributes of God that are unique to God alone, I can still learn to be like him and strive to be like him. I can be finitely what God is infinitely. I can, to a limited sense, be what God is in an unlimited sense. I can, in a fallible way, be what God is infallibly. So the argument that I cannot be angry without sinning is wrong and unscriptural. Listen again to the verse. Be ye angry, the Bible says, and sin not. It's a tall order. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. With that in mind, I want to approach anger first by pointing out what anger looks like when it is perfectly righteous and holy and good. In other words, I want to consider first the wrath of God. Then I want to consider what keeps our wrath from being like God's wrath. And finally, I want to consider how we can be angry and sin not. We begin with the wrath of God. And let me start by saying that we tend to be a little uncomfortable with the idea of God's wrath. It isn't something we want to talk about in public, especially among unbelievers. When we talk to unbelievers, we always want to talk to them about the love of God. Because in our mind, the love of God is much more attractive, right? The wrath of God, not so attractive. A little maybe on the ugly side, or so we think. So we can be a little reluctant to bring up the wrath of God when we're trying to speak of the glory of God. We might be a little embarrassed by the thought that God is angry or that God speaks openly of his anger 
of his wrath. This could be in part because we think that God's wrath makes him look like a monster. And partly that's traceable to our own experience with anger and wrath. Because most of the time when people get really mad, they turn into a monster. We've seen it in ourselves and we've seen it in others as well. We've all seen the kind of monster that wrath turns a man into. If you've ever been there when someone really lost control and went into a rage, then you know what I mean on that. It's, it's awkward to be around it, right? <clears throat> and it might be even a little dangerous because people, when rage is not satisfied, when rage is frustrated, in fact, people get angrier and angrier and they keep pushing it farther and farther. Certainly when so many have witnessed the rage of their parents and have been victimized by it, and parents that say mean, cruel things to their children and do cruel things to their children in a fit of anger. <clears throat> we don't think that wrath commends God to anyone. When we think of anger, we think of a loss of self-control. We think of something irrational, temporary insanity. Not only that, but wrath tends to burn hottest towards those we have the most expectation of, those who are closest to us. In times when we feel like we can't do anything about the problem, when we're frustrated in our purposes and intentions, or um, if we are insulted, it angers us that we can't do anything about it. And we might try and someone hurts us or insults us, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And so we say things in order to cause them pain. And if they, you know, if you think of the most vicious thing that you can say and you say it and then they laugh in response, then your rage is increased even more. Or if they don't notice what you said or don't pay any attention to it or agree with you and are agreeable about it. That's the sort of thing that provokes an even greater amount of rage and fury on your part. Anger is a display of frustration that is often provoked by our own impotence, our own powerlessness to make that person pay, make them feel how angry we are, how frustrated we are, how irritated we are with them. Sometimes wounded pride causes our anger. We've been slighted. We've been insulted. We've been dismissed or disregarded. And we don't take it very well. We think we ought to be treated better than that. We think that people should hold us in higher regard than that. Hold us in higher esteem than that. Sometimes, frankly, sometimes we're just crabby and self-absorbed. And determined to make everyone pay, just pay a price for being around us when I don't feel like being in a good mood. And so I'm going to make you pay like I'm mad. I'm in a bad mood 
And I'm mad at you because you aren't giving me a wide enough berth. You're not staying, keeping far enough away from me. You're not pampering me or patting me on the head or giving me an attaboy or trying to appease me enough. And sometimes we use anger just to inform the people around us that we're in a bad mood and you better watch out. Because it gives us some kind of sick pleasure to see people squirm and see them tiptoe around us because then we feel like we're in control there. And sometimes, as I've said, anger, wrath, rage, fury is just plain cruel. And anger is, in fact, the uh, expression and the motivation of that cruelty. And when we think about what anger really looks like and how anger really behaves, we have a hard time thinking of God that way. And that's good. Because God doesn't sin in anger. And everything that I just described to you is sinful, unrighteous, self-centered anger. Now, I'm not surprised if many who reject God reject him because they see him as bad tempered, an angry God, a Karen. It would be easy to say that there's no self-interest in God's anger, but that wouldn't be the truth. There's no wounded pride Nothing that smacks of offended dignity. That's not true. God is committed to his own glory. God commands us to love him with all our might because God loves himself with all his might. And God commands us to worship his glory because God himself is committed to that glory. And there's a reason. There's a reason. Because there is nothing more glorious then God himself, he is altogether glorious. So if God was more committed to the glory and honor of something other than himself, whatever that thing was, would be God. You and I are called on to join God in his commitment to his own glory, in his commitment to magnifying his own name. We are called to join him in loving him above all else. So. Because God always seeks his own glory. And he does that because that's the only authentic glory that there is in the world. And since God has committed himself to the pure display of his own glory in the world then God also responds with anger and wrath towards anyone who slights his glory, who despises his glory, who refuses to acknowledge his glory. So yes, God's wrath and indignation is directed towards those who disregard him and slight him and treat him with insolence. But in the wrath of God, you will find nothing arbitrary. 
nothing impulsive, and nothing that is morally offensive. God's wrath is, in fact, always, always his righteous response to moral badness and corruption. God responds to man's sin by wrath, with wrath, with anger, with judgment. And certainly we recognize that God cannot indulge our sin or give sin a pass or treat sin with indifference. He can't tolerate it or accommodate us in it or make allowances for it whatsoever. His rage and indignation towards human sin and folly is justified. It is warranted. It is righteous. In fact, his righteousness is displayed most vividly in his wrath towards sin. Because how could a God who tolerated sin be thought of as righteous? How could he be a righteous God if he tolerated sin? If he gave sin a pass? That wouldn't be a righteous thing for him to do. And if God took pleasure in evil as well as in good, that would not be good. That would not be holy. That would not be righteous. We all know this. We know this as a matter of fact. And so while the thought of God's wrath strikes fear in our hearts, we also recognize the justice of it. Here's, here's the thing. We all recognize that God is angry with a cause. He is angry for cause. His anger is always, always perfectly just. <clears throat> God is not a cruel monster. God, in fact, is a righteous judge. If you're the victim of a crime, there is a certain comfort in seeing that someone unrelated to you, someone who hearing the facts in the case from both sides comes down and rules that you, in fact, were the victim of the crime and that it was, in fact, a crime that was committed against you. That is a comforting thing right there. That is justice. And to see the judge announce the, the verdict with fire, with passion, adds to the level of comfort, the assurance that what was done to me was wrong and it wasn't just my imagination that it was wrong. It really was wrong. That's what we want. A judge who responds with outrage because of a crime that was committed against us. And God's wrath is the wrath, the anger of an indignant judge responding righteously to the crime and to the criminal. And please spare me the hate the sin, love the sinner kind of thing here. God's wrath is directed at people who have despised his law and shaken their fist at the authority of God. Romans 2 verse 3 and thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them that do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? 
Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Luke 12, verse 46. This is Jesus speaking here. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. God doesn't just deal with sin. Yes, he dealt with sin on the cross, but God deals with sinners and God's wrath is directed at them. Those who sin against God. And so we can define God's wrath especially the wrath of God that is presented in the book of Romans as God's resolute action in punishing sin. It is the active manifesting of his hatred of irreligion and moral evil. That is the wrath of God. So let's consider what his wrath includes. God's wrath includes an absolute commitment to justice. It includes an absolute commitment to righteousness, to moral goodness. It includes, in fact, an emotional response, moral outrage towards every kind of moral badness and evil and injustice. It includes a brilliant display of the glory of God. The glory of God is seen so vividly in the wrath of God. It gives us, in fact, if we leave out the wrath of God, we do not see the glory of God. <clears throat> God does not tolerate sin. And in fact, it is the wrath of God against sin and the justice of that wrath that lights up the cross of Christ with purest glory. And let me pause right here and point out to you an important distinction between the wrath of man, sinful wrath, and the wrath of God, holy wrath, good wrath, just wrath. Because at the cross of Christ, you see the wrath of God poured out on sin justly, righteously. And you see that the result of it is not destruction. This is what is terrible about the wrath of man, sinful wrath. Is that nine times out of ten, it is destructive. But the wrath of God was poured out on Christ so that his wrath could be put away towards you and me. Someone pointed out the fact that in uh, the New Testament, in the Gospels, a man with a withered hand was brought to Jesus as a test to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath day. And Jesus became indignant, outraged at it, 
and healed the man's hand. And the point was made that he healed a hand as opposed to when we often respond in wrath and injure our hand because we put it through a wall or something like that. God's wrath is not destructive. God's wrath is destructive of the sin, but not of the sinner. So the wrath of God includes forgiveness and pardon and deliverance from the wrath. Wrath is used so we can escape wrath. But his wrath, the wrath of God does not include any kind of peevishness for self-indulgence, any shade of sadistic cruelty, cruelty for the mere pleasure it gives God to see people suffer. That's not the wrath of God, nothing like that. Any attempt to use wrath as a tool of manipulation or to impose God's will on us in bully fashion in a way that forces us against our will to yield to him, to give him a wide berth so that we can avoid the fireworks display That is never, never the case with God. But always, his wrath always is sent forth in order to correct the injustice so that we can enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, then, let's consider the sin of anger. And let's face it. Most of our anger is driven by self-interest. Most of our anger is me wanting to get my way and you not giving it to me. And you know, I've noticed that when angry people use anger in order to get their way, they're not satisfied by that. They're mad at you for giving them their way. They're mad at you because you gave them their way, but you didn't anticipate other ways that they wanted to have their way as well. You gave them a little, but you didn't give them everything that they wanted because anger is never satisfied. A temper tantrum is never a pathway to satisfaction. Never. We get angry because we don't get our way. I didn't get what I wanted. People don't hold us in the the level of respect that we think we should be held. That's why we get angry at people we're closer to. Why your worst fits will be against your spouse. Husbands outraged, raging against their wives, wives against their husband, because you expect more. It's the Bible principle. To whom much is given, much more shall be required. And so we get angry Angrier with that person, our children, if they don't cater to us the way that we think that they should, if they don't notice all the things that they're doing for them and express an appropriate level of gratitude or appreciate it as passionately as you think that you deserve, if they disregard something that is important to you or don't even notice it in you, or especially if they criticize something that mattered to you, a whole lot. If it's a big deal to you 
but it isn't a big deal to, to them. If, if you laugh at something that is important to them or say whatever, right? When it's important to them. If you really wanted something and didn't get it, especially if the person who withheld it from you is someone you expected to recognize the great sacrifices that you've made on their behalf and all the times you've given them what they wanted and now you can't give me this one thing right here. So instead of rewarding your dedication, they disregard that. We get angry because we're focused on ourselves. And we tend to think that everyone else is paying as much attention to me as I am paying attention to me. And when we discover that they are not, we get angry. And we use anger because it works. We use anger for the same reason cowboys fire off their pistol when they're trying to herd the sheep or the cows. I guess it wouldn't be sheep, would it? No cowboy herd sheep, right? I've been in the West for 20 some years. I know this. Anger helps us get our way. You ask politely and people think they have a choice, right? You get mad before you ask and everyone knows they don't have a choice. Anger keeps people respectful of us, makes them pay attention to what we want, makes them pay attention to us. An angry person knows everyone has to tiptoe around them. Everyone has to be very careful around them, walk on eggshells around them, and they like having everyone in that position. Anger makes people listen to us who might not otherwise. When I don't have anything really intelligent or smart or great suggestions to make, I can always get angry. That will make sure that people will hear me on it. And anger is sin when we use it the ways that I'm describing it. Anger is sin when we use it to express our own self-will, to impose that will on the people around us. Anger is, in fact, an act of hatred. It's the opposite of the kind of love that God requires us to show to our neighbor. Jesus said that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, that you've broken the sixth commandment, which says, thou shalt not kill. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, the only legitimate cause for anger would be righteous indignation for the glory of God. That's it. Everything else is anger without a cause. Anger is an act of covetousness because anger seeks to get for self by unlawful means 
what it does not have or cannot have rightly. Anger is an attempt to force your hand in my favor. Anger is an unkindness and disregards the well-being of those we direct our anger towards. It only thinks of self and me getting my way instead of you and your well-being. Anger fails to be temperate and sober because anger loses control. It is, as I said before, a kind of temporary insanity. He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hated. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be anger, angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Anger is a failure to be clothed with humility. Anger is a way we assert our pride, our right to get our own way. It's a way that we assert ourselves, push ourselves forward. Anger can be cruel and spiteful and malicious. It's a way we disregard each other, disrespect each other, refuse to treat one another with the dignity that is required by love. Anger quite often is full of revenge. It's a way that we even the score, make people pay for slights, for offenses, pay them back for injuries that we've received at their hand, whether they gave it intentionally or unintentionally. Aristotle defined anger as a conspicuous revenge for a conspicuous slight. In other words, anger refuses to deal with offenses the way the Bible requires us to deal with offenses. And the sin of anger is increased when we nurse it, when we tell ourselves that I'm justified in this anger of mine, when I, we tell ourselves that that person deserves it, that person wronged me, and I haven't even the score yet, and I need to keep working at it. When anger mulls over in the head, how to even the score, how to get that revenge. So the Bible teaches us, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Seek to cool your heels so that you can deal biblically with the offense. Anger is a failure to treasure the fellowship that we enjoy in Jesus Christ because anger has no regard for that fellowship, no delight in it. Anger puts me getting my own way above the fellowship that I ought to have with you. It's more important that I get revenge on you than it is that I be in good fellowship with you. In fact, Anger jeopardizes the fellowship that we enjoy with one another, not just temporarily. We may think that it will be just a temporary thing, but quite often anger does irreparable damage. You know, if 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 there's a wall that needs to be repaired in your basement and you need to knock a hole in that wall, don't use a hand grenade. 
I mean, it will knock a hole in the wall, yes. But it will damage far more than just the wall that you needed to do the repair on. We Anger lacks any kind of surgical precision. All right? Um, if I need my appendix removed, please don't walk up to me with a knife and stick it in and slice up. All right? This is not how I want it to be done. I want surgical precision by the person removing my appendix. And if I've offended you, rage and fury has the effect of a dagger stabbed in the gut. God requires us to put away unrighteous anger. In fact, look at Ephesians 4, a few verses down in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Someone pointed out that the all there, all wrath would include even the righteous wrath, that we should put it away from us. So in other words, there's a time and a place for righteous indignation, but the goal, the goal of righteous wrath is always an end to wrath and a restoration of fellowship and peace. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. I've never seen an angry person be able to be effectively kind. I've seen angry people be kind to other people before, and it was always obnoxious when they did it. Always making a show, flaunting the kindness in order to put the other person down. Here, let me do it for you, since you won't do it for me. Put that away. Be kind. Uh, Anger and wrath and malice and bitterness have to be put away in order to be kind. Colossians 3 and verse 8, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. This is what God commands. So we're not talking here merely about a weakness of our nature. We're talking about sin. And God says, put it away. If we don't, we are in sin. You wouldn't take Playboy magazine and set it out on your coffee table in your living room. But many of you, many of us, will throw temper tantrums in that same living room. If you shoplifted while you were at the grocery store, you wouldn't lay out the treasure on the kitchen table and brag to the kids about it. But many times we throw a hissy fit, go into a rage in front of our families and act as if it's no big deal. It is sin and God says to put it away. 
Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The reason Paul in Ephesians 4 and verse 27, yeah, verse 27 says, neither give place to the devil is because God, Paul recognizes and God speaking through Paul informs us that there is a very gray line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And when we are angry, it is very easy for us to give place to the devil. Very easy. In fact, the devil looks for anger as his opportunity to lead you further into sin. The only way we can put away this unrighteous anger is by means of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives by our cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. You know, I'll just pause there for a second and say, I've never known a bad-tempered man who was not also proud of his bad temper who thought that his hot temper commended him, made him a better man and a better Christian because he could get angry at the snap of a finger. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, Devilish, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. All these things are contrary to an angry spirit. I've never known an angry person who was easy to be entreated. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. I mean, would it be an odd thing for you to hear someone talk about gentleness as if it was weakness, a form of weakness? We think anger is a form of strength. This shows how corrupt we are in our minds. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That's the wisdom that's from above. And my friends, we are to walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you also in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That, my friend, is serious. 
Don't start quoting the, uh, you know, well, once saved, always saved to me. God says that these things are marks of an unbeliever. You are an angry person. There's always a little bit of scheme under the surface. God says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You conduct your affairs with anger. God says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All these things are contrary to an angry spirit. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. The reason we hold on to anger, the reason we use anger is because it gives us power with people. It helps us get our way. If you are an angry person, if you regularly lose your temper, get angry about things when they don't go your way. The hardest thing in the world is to trust that to God and to give it up and say, Lord, if I never get my way again in my life, I'm not going to use anger in order to get it. That's, by the way, that's what it looks like to trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's it. And that's hard. If you're an angry person, you are used to getting your way by your anger. And giving that up is difficult. And saying, Lord, I'm going to have to trust you to give me what I need. <clears throat> Through the power of the Holy Ghost, you must learn to govern your passions and your affections. And the Bible says, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Isn't that interesting? Because quite often powerful people use anger to get their power and keep it. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth the spirit than he that taketh the city. Anger is a great destroyer. Uh, you know, think of any temper tantrum you throw. Think of it as if you tossed a hand grenade into the basement. You don't know what it's going to destroy, but you can be sure it's going to destroy something. A stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both, the Bible says. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Angry parents, your kids are afraid of you. And if you keep it up, eventually they won't want to be around you. It undermines their trust in you, makes them unwilling to talk about things that they're struggling with with you. All of my kids have sinned in ways that, you know, I am horrified by. But if I throw a fit and a temper tantrum, I lose the ability to help them 
overcome the sin because they won't talk to me about it again. They won't risk it or take a chance. Anger alienates you from people you love. It causes them to respond to you with anger as well. You you lash out with anger at them. Eventually, they're going to lash out at you with anger as well. And that will be a grief of mine to you. But they, they learn how the game is played. They've watched the expert wield the weapon. And eventually, they're ready to handle the weapon themselves. And they'll use anger against their children and their spouse. And so the pattern will continue and more people will be infected by it. That's why the root of bitterness troubles many. People don't trust an angry person. The Bible warns us against an angry person. Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man. Thou shalt not go lest thou learn his ways. And get a snare to thy soul. And anger leaves us vulnerable to many other sins. The Bible names wrath and anger and strife in a cluster of other sins. And you open yourself up to it when you indulge anger. An angry man stirreth up strife. And a furious man, listen to this, a furious man aboundeth in transgression. So in other words, anger is rarely found by itself. And the Bible tells us why. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. No defenses. Nothing leaves you more defenseless than anger. So I want to talk then about righteous anger here. I would not have you think that we must eliminate anger altogether. In fact, our text says, be angry. That's a command and sin not. Uh, Certainly there is a place uh, for anger and a possibility of being angry without sin. But I would caution you again. It's so easy to fall into sin. That when you're angry, you have to be twice as careful. Which, by the way, is contrary to the way we typically are angry, right? Because when we're angry, we usually fly off the handle. Learn to be measured. To be even. To be temperate, spirit-controlled in your anger. But learn to be angry also when you ought to be angry. In fact, rejection of righteous anger has produced a vacillating kind of weakness in our culture, in our pulpits, and from our preachers as well. Bad behavior from previous generations has caused many to flinch at the idea of anger at all. So we are, we've seen pastors raging Furious, losing their temper in the pulpit. We've seen it, and we don't want that. And so we would rather have a pastor who is accommodating to sin 
than to see that. But in this day, while the battle rages, we need righteous anger and indignation. We need it desperately. Packer said there is such a thing as Christian anger. I'm sorry, John Stott said there's such a thing as Christian anger and too few Christians either feel or express it. I thought that was an amazing statement coming from a Brit like John Stott. It just doesn't strike you as something they would ever say. Too few Christians either feel or express it. Indeed, when we fail to do so, listen to this, we deny God, damage ourselves, and encourage the spread of evil. He went on to say there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, We should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. What other reaction can wickedness be expected to provoke in those who love God? Psalm 119.53 says, Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. Let that be said of us as well. Keep in mind that appeasement is not peace and that most of the time silence comes across as consent. And this even goes to our language. Someone said nine times out of ten, the refined word is the word used to excuse an evil and the coarse word is the word that condemns it. And yet... When people use a coarse word to describe evil, they typically are condemned by Christians. There is a time for decorum and there is a time for demolition. God help us to know the difference. So let me then give you some helps for dealing with anger. And the number one help, most important help that I would give you is this. Remember that the engine, the engine of anger is self-will. All your resolutions to control your temper will evaporate the moment that your pride has been injured. And for this reason, we must, we must learn to see ourselves rightly. And the only way for you to see yourself rightly is to regularly, weekly approach God in worship. You'll never see yourself rightly until you see God rightly. When you see the glory of God, you will no longer spend your time trying to boost your own ratings because you'll see what is truly glorious. Worship God every week on the Lord's Day Look in his word every day for a fresh glimpse of his glory and greatness. And doing so will keep yourself in the right perspective. Nothing eliminates self-glory as effectively as a right view of the glory of God. Overcome the idol of the self. And you will certainly have a better handle on your temper. Number two, don't take yourself too seriously. No one else does. 
you shouldn't either. Seriously, we need to be reminded of this. Teenage boys need to be reminded of this. Nobody thinks about you as much as you do. Nobody does. In fact, you'd be shocked how little anybody else thinks of you. I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean think about yourself. Do you spend the majority of your time thinking about another person? Unless you're in love with that person, probably not. People don't notice even half of what you think they notice. I mean, how many times people have come to me and apologized for something they did? And I hate to say it, but I didn't even notice it. I didn't notice it. I can't think of it right now even. I don't know how I would have noticed that. You know, again, I'm not omniscient. hate to, you know, ruin anything for you. Um, I'm bringing myself down here, but I don't see half of the stuff people think I see with that. People are far more likely to notice the fact that you are self-conscious than to understand what you're self-conscious about. Learn to develop then a sense of humor about your own faults and foibles. Be able to laugh at yourself. The most insufferable people I've ever known are people who cannot laugh at themselves. It is an affliction. And if you have that affliction, you should be pleading with the Lord to deliver you from evil. Because nothing good comes from that. Being able to laugh at yourself will keep you from being overly sensitive when you think other people are laughing at you. It's a good thing, really a good thing, when I can laugh with the people who are laughing at me. Number three, don't feel obligated to avenge every slight. Don't feel obligated to even every score. In fact, in life in general, it's good if everybody's up on you a couple scores. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. When it comes to injuries, injuries are one thing where it's better to receive than to give. Number four, love your neighbor and do good. I think that so much anger could be resolved if we would just seek for ways to love one another. Make that your rule for life, and you'll be able to handle it when people do you wrong. Return good for the evil that they give you, but don't do it out of malice. You know the saying, kill them with kindness? Don't do that. Don't kill people with kindness. When you kill people with kindness, you're turning kindness up on its head. It might be a good strategy, but it's not a biblical principle. Be kind to people with kindness. Love people with kindness. Show that love with kindness. Number five, when you lose your temper, confess it as sin to the people who saw it. That will make you more careful the next time. Nothing harder than when wounded pride has to go come back and say, I was wrong. 
I threw the temper because I thought I was wronged. And now it's a double whammy for me instead of just bearing it. And then number six, if you need to, go to a brother who's offended you and tell him his offense between you and him alone. And do so not to put him down, not to put him in his place, not to triumph over him, but do it to gain your brother, which is what Matthew 18 says. Listen, love is fulfilling the law. Okay? Love is me fulfilling the law towards you. And doing so not in a not in a wooden, regimented, mechanical kind of way, like putting quarters in a um, candy machine. But doing so as an investment. Yeah, I suppose you could say when you put quarters in the candy machine that you're making an investment. Um, but the reward is paid off immediately and there are no dividends. Well, except for the excess weight um, that you gain from it. All right. You put your quarters into a stock that pays dividends. You get a return on that. So think of love as investing in another person lawfully, according to the word of God. In order to see that, when I invest in a company, I want to see that company flourish and prosper. I don't want to see them flounder and die. I put my money into that company. Even so, love is an investment you make in other people because you want to gain your brother. And you want to profit. Yes, you want to profit from That's why when I invest in a stock, I want to profit from that investment. But I want that company to make it. I want them to thrive because then I prosper more from it. Even so, if we will love our neighbor as we ought to, as God has commanded, if we'll have fervent charity, isn't that an odd combination of words? Fervent charity towards one another. Well, then. I will learn to overcome my bad disposition and my bad temper with them. Do that. Pour out love on one another. And see if you don't learn to overcome pride, anger, wrath, envy, bitterness as a result.